Lord, we pray, uh, we pray that you would send um, members of your family uh, to the Atani, uh, that you would um, call out from among them uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, um, that you would name their names uh, in your book of life, that you would draw them to you. Lord, we, we pray uh, for the people who will leave their families and their homes uh, to go and be a voice, to cry out uh, to this, this people, to repent and believe the gospel, that you would strengthen them, that you would encourage them, that you would give them great joy in the labor that you have laid before them. And I pray, Lord, that many Atani would be saved, that many Atani would come to call Jesus their Lord. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, today we are going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So um, we're in our fifth sermon in the We Are series. So there's been uh, four to date. Uh, this is the, the fifth. That fifth. Five comes after four, in case anybody was still curious. Um, and we've been exploring different analogies in Scripture. That Scripture is full of uh, pictures, of word um, stories, of, of uh, metaphors and analogies that describe what it means to be in Christ. We've uh, looked at the body, the family, the embassy, and the priesthood. And today we're going to look at uh, the garden or the gardeners. So um, we've been trying to answer what it means to be a church member universally. So no matter what church you go to, you show up there. What does it mean to be a part of that body? Um, but then also to talk specifically, because we all are specifically members of, of this body of remedy. And so what does it mean to be a part of our church here? And so far, uh, that we've seen the church described as a body, and it's Christ's body. It's, it's his flesh. We are flesh of his flesh and blood of his blood. And, and we saw that we're dependent on all the members of Christ's body to fulfill their God-given function, to have a healthy, working body that serves as our primary community and identity. Right? The, the fact that we are Christ's body should be the, the first thing that's true about us. Uh, we also care well for all of its members, and we engage the world on mission with Jesus. That's what it, it means to be part of the body. We also saw that we're a family. The church is a family, and we are God's family. We, we dwelt on the beautiful gospel promise of adoption and all the benefits conveyed to us by Christ's work in his incarnation, passion, and resurrection. And as a family, we looked at how we uh, ought to relate to each other as governed by God's uh, holy and beautiful and good and pure law. Then uh, we moved and looked at how the church is an embassy. We are God's territory on foreign soil, right? If you go to, I don't know, the German embassy, wherever they may have one, right? You're actually on a little sliver of Germany in America, right? It's, it's German soil. And, and the church is the same thing here in this world, right? We are a sliver of God's kingdom here and as God's embassy, we are ambassadors for the king. We, we speak for him to this world, and we plead with them to be reconciled to God. 
We also are, are seeking to protect and to love our fellow citizens of that heavenly city until we all reach that place for which our souls long. And then last week we saw that the church is a priesthood. We are in the perpetual service of Yahweh. We've been consecrated, not by the blood of bulls, but by the blood of the Lamb of God. And we have been set apart for his worship. We are to worship God in all of our vocations. Whether we're, uh, whether we're a student, uh, a parent, not a parent, married, not married, work, don't work. Whatever we do, uh, we should honor God and serve him faithfully. But especially as we gather together on the Lord's Day. That, that was sort of the focus of, of that sermon. And today, we'll look at the truth that we are gardeners and a garden. And we'll see that from 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 9, but we'll, we'll jump to other places because this is a, a I, I think it's one of the most controlling analogies in all of scripture. It, we have it in the very beginning in Genesis and it takes us all the way to the book of Revelation. We won't be able to do all that work uh, today, but uh, as you read your Bible, always think about the garden. That's... Uh, my little plug for that. Uh, and so if you are able, uh, would you please stand with me as we read together God's word. First Corinthians 3, 1 through 9. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh, or are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Go ahead and have a seat and let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word today, uh, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts, that you would be tilling up the soil, that you would be pulling out the weeds that would choke our love and our devotion to you, that you would be uh, placing uh, plants that have fallen in in shallow soil, that you would transplant them to, to deep, rich earth where they may grow and flourish abundantly. And Lord, we pray that you would scare away the birds that would seek to, to snatch the word from our heart so that we may reject it. And Lord, plant us, plant us in your field where we may grow 60, 80, 100 fold of the seed that's been put into us. Let us be abundantly yours, Lord, and please use this time to do that work in us. Transform us by your word, we pray. Amen. So there are four things in this text that I want us to see. Four. So there's four points. And then point three has three subpoints. So the first point is this uh, immaturity created factions based upon human distinctions. It should be up on the screen. Um, 
So there's jealousy and strife in Corinth. Jealousy and strife. Um, the, the, there's different people. They're looking at the human origins. How did, how did I become a Christian? That is basically what they're asking. And some of them are looking that, hey, when Paul was here, that's when I became a Christian. And others are saying, hey, when Apollos was here, that's when I became a Christian. And so some are claiming Apollos and others are claiming Paul. And they think that this matters. Like, it's not like, oh, yeah, he, like he's just I really like him. He's my friend. They think it gives them special standing among the church. It makes them more better or more better, uh, right, than somebody else. And what's important to realize here, this is not a distinction or a difference in the doctrines of the church. So it's very important for us to understand. Uh, so, for example, the church wasn't divided between Paul and Apollos because they had different doctrines of God. Uh, they weren't radically different on their views of the deity of Christ. So, uh, Paulus was saying, yes, uh, Jesus was God incarnate. And Paul was saying, no, like, actually, he became God when he, like, lived a perfect life. Right? That, that's not what is going on. Um, they, they did not, uh, like... One didn't teach the general resurrection of the dead, and the other did not. So there's no, like, core doctrinal difference between Paul and Apollos. They they preach the same gospel. They have the same message. But, for some reason, uh, the, the people of Corinth are so carnal, they're so immature, that they, that they attribute something special to Paul and Apollos. And, and, and their immaturity and fleshly desires sort of latch onto them as, as people that they've elevated in their mind. And, and just simple association with Paul and Apollos becomes reason for pride, becomes a reason for arrogance, becomes a reason for them pu- uh, pump, pumping themselves up, right? And thumping their chest and saying, I am of Paul. Look at me. But Paul and Apollos are nothing. That's point two. Paul and Apollos are nothing. I mean, we see that. Just look at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, uh, it's important to sort of like step back because I know that there's probably some people among us who says like, if somebody in the Bible says I'm nothing, then they like own that, right? And then they hate themselves. That's not what I want us to do. I don't want us to own that, that piece of it. Paul is not saying we shouldn't have great joy in being used by God in his service, right? He's not saying I'm nothing. And so I'm not happy that God has used me to save souls, he also isn't minimizing the importance of the work of evangelism. He's not saying it's irrelevant that I did this. He's just saying, I don't get the credit. And, and this, after all, is, is Paul who reminds us in Isaiah 52, 7, when he writes in Romans ten fifteen, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. People who preach the God, it's beautiful. Paul is not taking that beauty away. Instead, Paul is saying that there is no special status or superiority conferred onto any of us based on the humans who preach the good news to us. There is no, there is no, no distinction. 
It could be a, a six-year-old or it could be Billy Graham, right? Like there's no distinction. No one would say anything special uh, is conferred to you by who shares the gospel to you. He appears instead to be thinking like Jesus, uh, who in Luke 17 said this. He said, will any of you, this is Jesus in Luke 17, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. So um, what, what this is a picture of is, is a picture of like a, uh, somebody who owns land and has servants, right? And uh, I've never owned land and I don't have any servants. But what Jesus is saying is like when your servant comes in from doing his work, he comes and he serves you at home, right? Uh, He says, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink. Uh, Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Verse 10, so you also, so uh, Jesus is making like this human example. You have this Lord, you have this master of the house, and his servants do the work. And the master of the house just expects his servants to do the work, right? He doesn't thank them for their service. He's, He's using human examples here, right? He just expects them to do the job. What happens in verse 10, it says this, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We have only done what was our duty. So Paul and Apollos, even though they have done their duty and their feet are beautiful, they are unworthy servants who have only done what was their duty. And so how can they as humans do what the Corinthians think they are doing? How, how, how can Paul and Apollos confer on them extra power, extra authority, extra status? When all they are servants who have only at the very best just obeyed what God commanded. How does Paul, being of Paul or being of Apollos, make them special or a truer servant of Jesus? And the Bible's clear teaching is that it can't. It can't. And so uh, I would just encourage all of us to... To have that in mind, even if there is somebody who you admire, right? Somebody nationally famous or internationally famous who, like, does cool things. Um, but it's okay to think they do cool things, right? Like, that's fine. Um, it's even good to, like, read all the things that they say. But uh, they are just a servant. And even at best, they confer no special status to you. They don't make you any better of a Christian. Uh, they, God is the one who gives the growth. If you've grown ever by anything that Fudd has preached, anything I have preached, anyone anywhere has ever preached ever, or taught you, um, God is the one who gave you the growth. God is the one who has conferred blessing upon you. And they, you can love that person, and, and you should, because they've done something beautiful, but God is the one who grows you. God is the one who makes you special. God is the one who confers status and rank upon you. And he has already made you part of his family. He has already made you part of his body. What more can he give? So our third point is, is actually this. God gives the growth. The gospel is this, that you are God's field. Now, the special message of the gospel is that God gives you the growth in the garden of God. Again, look at verse 6 through 9. I planted, Apollos watered, 
but God gave the growth so that neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Um, now, the, uh, the field here, I think that this is the only time in the New Testament this word is used. It just means like a field, right? A cultivated field that like people work on. Um, and, but in order, like, does anyone feel like being called a field is good news? Like just immediate, like, yes, I'm a field. I have stuff growing on me. Like, no, right? Like that doesn't seem like good news. And so in order for us to understand how this is an announcement of good news, this is, this is literally the culmination of the entire Old Testament. Like this announcement to the church at Corinth. Of course, it's like a very small, little itty bitty uh, announcement of it. But it is uh, an announcement of it. And so what we need to do is we're going to have to do some Old Testament work here. Um, and I'm going to talk about a little pattern that gets established very early on in the scriptures. If you go to Genesis 2 through 4, our first parents, Adam and Eve, are in a beautiful garden. It's beautiful. There's fruit everywhere for them to eat. Like uh, they're, they, they have peace with God. They're in their innocence, which means they've never sinned. And, and they're just enjoying this lush, beautiful garden fed with rivers. There's four rivers that flow uh, into Eden. And there's gold. There's like, it's awesome. Eden is awesome. Um, but they fall. They break God's covenant and transgress his law. And, and they are cast out into the wilderness east of Eden. All right, east of Eden. So this, is, so this is the west. This is the east. All right, east of Eden. So there's Eden. And this pattern of, of east to west movement is, is all over uh, the Old Testament. Um, it's repeated again and again. And I'll just look. I think it's just two. Two examples. Um, so Abram or Abraham, right? He, he's in Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur of the Chald- or Chaldeans, however you say it, uh, is to the east. Um, and so he is there. He's in the east. And God speaks to him in, in, in uh, Genesis 12. And he just announces good news to Abraham, right? He, he tells him that even though he has no children, he's going to be multiplied like the sand of the sea. And even though he has no home because he left with his, uh, his father um, and they just started wandering. So he has no home uh, to call his own. He says, I'm going to give you a land, a land of promise. And so Abraham then becomes this, this type of, Right, where the seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3, who's going to crush the head of the serpent, he's going to multiply, he's going to fill the earth, and he's going to have a land of promise again. And so, as, as we're reading the rest of the Old Testament, there's lots of warnings and stuff. And, you know, uh, in the Exodus, they head from the east, right? They, from the east into the, the west, into the land of, of promise. Um, but then Israel, like Adam and Eve before them, when they're in the promised land, when they're they have kings and all this stuff. They break covenant with Yahweh, just like Adam and Eve did. They, they violate his laws. They break his commandments. And just like Adam and Eve, they are cast to the east. They are sent into exile. They are sent out of the promised land of God. And the lands of the east are always styled as barren deserts in the uh, Old Testament. 
They're hot. They're lifeless. They're the haunt of wild beasts, destruction, and death. They are the fate of all men who defy the will of Yahweh, which is all of us, right? All of us defy the will of Yahweh. And they represent how the curse of sin destroys all that is good and refreshing in this world. So, so the, the desert, the desert is what we all deserve. The desert is what we all can claim as our birthright. The desert is what we have. And so with, with that in mind, listen now to the voice of Isaiah as he declares to us the promise of the gospel in Isaiah chapter 35. The wilderness, which is how the, the Old Testament talks about the desert all the time. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice. And listen, so you, you have desert, right? Have, have anybody been to the desert? It's just like, it's just desert. You take off your shoes, you try to walk on the sand, your feet burn because it's so hot, right? Desert. It's, it, so nothing really grows there except for cactus, which are adapted to extract moisture from the air and like have really deep roots. Anyway, um, desert, um, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the cro- crocus. It's a flower right? They're beautiful flowers. Um, They don't grow in the desert, I don't think. Uh, It shall blossom abundantly and and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon, Lebanon is known for its massive trees, like massive forests of Lebanon. The the paneled cedar that's just beautiful, lush forests shall be given to it to the wilderness. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, again, places known for their forests and trees, shall be in the desert. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. And will the recompense of God, he will come and save you. The blossoming of the desert, the garden, the fresh field in the desert is a sign that God has come to deliver his people. Then the eyes of the blind, beginning in verse 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ear of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like the deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. I'm reminded of what our Jesus did in his earthly ministry. With these verses, did he not open the eyes of the blind? Did he not unstop the deaf ears? Did he not make the lame leap like the deer? And did he not give speech to the mute? For waters, continuing in verse 6, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool And the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. There's so much water, the terrain has been transformed. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. And the early church called Christianity the way. Even, and I love this, this is so encouraging. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there. And remember, the lion, right, is is always um, 
Uh, not always, but often in the New Testament, it's a symbol of the devil, right? The, the devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Even uh, no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up to it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. It's a picture of us entering into heaven. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall attain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You are God's field. You were once a desert place, but now God has turned you into a new creation. That's, uh, you know, uh, I didn't write the reference. It's Second Corinthians 2.17, I think. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He has been recreated. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And the way you enter into this promise, this is a promise for everyone listening today. And the way you enter into this promise is like Isaiah 41, 17 says. It says, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Are you thirsty? Romans 10.13, citing Joel 2.32, puts it this way. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in John 7.37-38, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me... As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this is a reference to the the Holy Spirit, the rivers of living water, the water that turns the desert into a a field is the Holy Spirit. And Isaiah foreshadowed Jesus' promise in this way. I did Isaiah 47 or 41, 17, and this is Isaiah 41, 18 through 20. I will open rivers on on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Uh, Right? So, um, again, water in the wilderness, not not normal. I will put uh, put in the wilderness the cedar. Again, this is a reference to to Lebanon and uh, acacia and myrtle and the olive. I will set the desert... I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know. So why is God doing all this? Why is God redeeming desert people? Why is he, why is he changing them from a deserted wilderness into a field? That they may see and know and may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. You are God's field. You are his cultivated land, his once wilderness, but now garden people. So, so what, what's, 
what's the application? There's three applications in this third point that I want us to look at. There's three instances of field and fruit imagery that are central to the teachings of Jesus. They're like the, the pillars of his teaching. The first comes as way of application, John 15. We are to abide in the vine or abiding in the vine. Uh, John fifteen five, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Again, this is also uh, imagery from uh, earlier in Isaiah. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Uh, So uh, each of these uh, applications, I have an observation and then I have a bunch of questions. So the the first observation, the observations are really quick, is that uh, fruit bearing is the Christian life. Fruit bearing is the Christian life. We see that in verse 5 where Jesus says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. He it is that bears much fruit. You have to abide in Jesus to bear fruit. You have to. And in order to be a Christian, you have to abide in Jesus. Um, if we're not abiding, or if we're not bearing fruit, the, the, we're thrown away and we wither. And we're gathered up and thrown into the fire. And so the question is, are you abiding in Jesus? Now that's, um, that's a very generic way of saying it. It's almost become Christianese, right? What does abiding mean? Um, maybe some of these questions will help, uh, help us answer some of this. Um, are you seeking Jesus in prayer? Are you laying out your heart before him? Are you asking for everything you need for body and soul? Like he commanded us in the Lord's prayer. Are you praying to your Jesus? Are are you reading your Bible regularly? Are, Are you searching the scriptures? Are you hearing from the voice of God regularly? Are you weekly coming to the table to receive from Christ all his benefits? Are you sharing your life with his body, the church? Are you loving your neighbor here at Remedy as yourself? Are you abiding in Jesus? Our, our second uh, point, or second uh, field and fruit imagery comes from Galatians 5, uh, 22 through 24. This is... Uh, Fruit of the Spirit. So Galatians five twenty two through 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so uh, Jesus in John 15 was talking about abiding and bearing fruit. Um, what fruit is he talking about? Uh, he's talking about Galatians five twenty two fruit. And the observation here is that the fruit Jesus calls us to is to have certain characteristics that define us. Certain characteristics that define us. Uh, of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So there's a lot of questions here. A lot. I have a lot. And so, are you growing in love? Are you growing in love? 
Are you willing to do what's best for others, even if it costs you much? Are you willing to treat others according to God's law, even if you don't want to? Are you growing in joy? Despite your life circumstances, do you find happiness in your nearness to God and in his love for you? Now, I, I don't want people to hear this say, like, I can't, I can't be having a tough time. Because that's not true. Like, life is hard. Life stinks a lot of times. It also has good moments. It also has things that are great about it. But in general, life has hard parts that are difficult. Um, and joy is not the absence of that. Joy can be a happiness despite it, right? Joy can be a happiness despite it. And, and that's what I'm trying to drive there uh, with that question. Is that despite uh, what's going on, the, the pressures that you feel, the, the, the sadness that's gripping your soul, right? Can you, can you hang your hope on something that makes you smile? Can you hang your hope on something that gives you uh, uh, fortitude of will, right? Like something that, that's in you that like lights a flame, and that gives you something to hold on to. Is that the type of joy that you, that you can have? And it's not always like, oh, I'm so happy all the time, right? Joy is something different. It, it's happiness despite sadness. Uh, are you growing in peace? Are you uh, in harmony with your fellow man? As much as it depends upon you, right? Have you done all that you can to bring uh, resolution to conflicts, to, to work through issues? Uh, are you at harmony with your fellow man? And are you an ambassador of peace, bringing peace with you wherever you go? Do you enter situations and, and, and bring your peace? And do you share the gospel with others as an ambassador? Um, are you exhibiting patience? Do you endure difficulties in trusting yourself to God? Um, so this is just me, right? Like I hate traffic. I hate it. It's literally the worst. Um, but it also, early on in my grown-up life, as I dr- started to drive, um, it became sort of a battleground for me for patience. Um, am I willing to be patient in the midst of something that I, I despise? I hate traffic. I hate it. Um, and it. It's small. It's insignificant. It's relatively unimportant. But it became a, a spot where I could practice and learn and teach myself to be patient uh, in the midst of what is, for most people, the worst part of the day, right? Getting to and from work. Um, and through practice, right, through prayer, through like all these things, I feel like I've grown in patience just because I focused on it. Just because I saw a, a way that I wasn't being patient. Uh, and I think all of us have stuff like that where uh, we can focus on one area of our life, whether it's at, uh, at, with coworkers or uh, as we drive or at, uh, with kids or with friends who um, do stuff that, that drives us crazy. Um, can we be patient with them? Are you kind? And so um, kindness is not just like, I don't know. Um, the, this question, I think, gets to the heart of it is, do you show mercy on those who don't deserve it? Do you show mercy to those who don't deserve it? Do you show kindness? Are you kind? Are you good? Uh, Are your thoughts and your speech and your actions focused on what is good? Are you meditating on what's true and beautiful 
and good and, and do the things that you say and, and the actions that you do uh, focus on producing those good outcomes? Are you being faithful? Are you true to your commitments and the promises of your words? Are you gentle with the weak and the frail? Are you a hand that, that mends and heals or uh, do you crush the bruised reed and do you extinguish the smoldering wick? Are you, are you gentle? And finally, are you, are you self-controlled? Uh, are you able to master your own will, denying your flesh with its lusts and desires and choosing the right path? Are you self-controlled? Um, now, uh, I just want to caveat this, right? I don't want this to feel... Um, like you, you are piling on guilt and shame in your life, right? Because to a certain level, all of us can answer these questions. No, not fast enough. Or no, not like I would like. Or like, no. Like all of us could answer these with a no. Um, and the idea here is, is not that, um, it's not like that you can just pull yourself up and do these things, right? These are fruits of the spirit. These are, these are gifts from God. These are things that we seek from him. And they come not from, right, the John 15 doesn't say, like, get yourself attached to the vine and, like, and work up all this fruit. Because if you don't, I'm going to cut you and I'm going to throw you away, right? The, the truth of the gospel is that, that by being God's field, by being adopted into his family, he has connected us to the vine. And that we will produce fruit. That is the good news of the gospel. But I ask these questions because many of us, um, can sometimes grow complacent, can sometimes grow lackadaisical, can sometimes lose the focus that we need on how we live and how we think and how we feel. And that's, that's really um, what's coming up in our next point here. Uh, there's four soils, but one Christian. Four soils and one Christian. This comes to us from Mark chapter 3, 14 through 20. If, if fruit bearing is like the goal, it's the aim, it's, it's our desire, like being identified with, with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, being, being attached to Jesus is the goal. We want to bear fruit. Jesus tells us the story of a, of a sower who goes out and sows seed in the field, and he, he throws uh, throws seed everywhere. God is indiscriminate with his gospel call. That's what you should learn about that parable. God wants all men to repent and believe. And he sends out his gospel everywhere. He's sending it to the whole world. He's filling it all up. He's just taking seed and he's throwing it everywhere, right? He's using us to do it. Like we go and we, we share the gospel. He's just throwing it everywhere. And there's some seed that falls along the road and the birds come and eat it. There's other seed that falls in rocky soil and it grows up. And then the sun comes out and scorches it and it dies. And then there's others that, that gets thrown in um, like weedy, thorny um, thorns also are a sign of the curse, just as an FYI. Like that's kind of a cool insight. That's what's going on here. But anyway, so seed's thrown and it, it grows up, but then it grows up with the thorns too. And if you have a garden and weeds are growing up with your small little plants, they, like, they don't grow as fast and they don't produce fruit when you need them to. Um, and then finally, there's seed that falls in the good soil. And his disciples come up to him and be like, Jesus, what does that mean? Can you help us understand what's going on here? Why are you teaching this? And he says this uh, in verse 14. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. They hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the words that is sown in them, 
And these that are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a little while. That's uh, patience, right? They don't have patience is what's going on in verse 17. Endurance. Then uh, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. These, uh, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the word, uh, world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But, that, uh, but those that are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. There is just one soil that bears fruit. That's the observation from this text. There's just one. But those who are sown uh, on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And so here are the questions. So if just one soil is of the fruit-bearing variety, just one, if just one soil receives the word and bears fruit, how are we supposed to respond? Like what, how are we supposed to react to this information from Jesus? When we catch ourselves looking at a part of God's word and find ourselves seeking to deny it or reject it, how are we supposed to respond? When we accept the word with joy and then feel our love growing cold, when life comes at us fast, right? And the pressures of life are just crushing us. And, and how, what are we going to do when our love grows cold? Or when the busyness of life, with all its apparent pressures and delights and goals and dreams, and it puts a squeeze on our devotion to Jesus, how are we going to act? There's only one soil that bears fruit, just one. And we should approach that soberly. Like this is serious. This is life and death. And we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's what Philippians 2.12 says. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But we should also boldly know that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 1.6. But I want you to stop thinking about yourself for a second. Like almost all people, at least me included, right? We are rather self-obsessed and we approach this text and we immediately start thinking about us. Like what soil am I? Where am I on the spectrum, right? Um, but what about other people? What about other people? What about the person sitting next to you? What about the person sitting behind you? What about the person in, in front of you? What about your brothers and sisters in this very body who could be on the verge of being one of the other non-fruit-bearing soil types? They could be on the verge. They could be doubting the promise of God, right? That, that's a way that you reject what God says. You say, God's promise of peace is not for me, right? Or, or God, he's not really God. He's just a good teacher. Those are, those are ways that you can reject the word that's, that, that God is, is just throwing out to you. Your love or their love could be turning cold after initially accepting God with great joy. You could be like, ah, this is, 
This Christianity thing is just not what it seems like it promised to be. Or you could be that they could be right. The pressures of life could be choking out their devotion to Jesus. Could be strangling their passion for their king. And so what do you need to do for them? Right? What, what type of brother or sister in Christ do you need to be on their behalf? You need to be a gardener. You need to be a gardener. They need you to be God's co-laborer. They need a Paul to plant and an Apollos to water. They need you to be a gardener. And that's our fourth point here. Fourth and final point. Not only are we God's garden, we are also God's gardeners. Verse 6 of of Acts. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. Fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. What do you call a worker in a garden? A gardener. Like, that's, that's how I, I say you're gardeners. So, generally speaking, what do gardeners do? Like, what do they do? If you, what's a gardener, right? They're, they're people who introduce new plants into a garden. They either they, they, they throw out seed or they bring transplants. Like, that's how we do our garden. We either have seeds or we go to the store and buy a plant and then put it in our garden, right? Um, and they maintain plants that are already introduced into the garden, right? We, we, you pick off the bugs and you, you snip the, the tomatoes so that they don't grow like into the middle, right? You always want them growing on the outside. Um, and so let's make a connection then to our four, four soils, right? We are gardeners in God's field. We should seek to help our fellow plants thrive, right? That's what it means to be a fellow Christian, right? You help to, 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 the, the plant next to you, the plant in front of you, the plant behind you, you try to make them all thrive. And we as remedy, but also every church of our Lord Jesus Christ should be a community that is characterized by a watchful, patient care of the plants and the same part of our field. And so uh, by way of application, who are you working to cultivate? Who are you working to invest in, to fertilize, to prune, to, to pick pests off? Who are you uh, noticing like, oh, this plant's getting scorched by the sun. I need to help it. I need to bring it to a deeper part of the field. I need to, I need to water it more often. I need to make sure that this plant survives. In addition to caring for plants already in the garden, which all of us should focus on, Gardeners introduce more seed into the system, right? They bring plants into the field. They go out and find plants to include in their garden. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so who are you praying for? Who are the names of the people that you want to see brought into the kingdom of God? Who do you have your spiritual conversations with? Who do you live before in such a way that they might ask for a reason for the hope that is in you? Now, I know just like bringing up sharing the gospel produces stress in some folks because I'm, I'm one of them, right? My mind gets filled with uh, what and how and when, 
right? And we either feel guilty or complacent or just hungry to do more. And sometimes we feel all of those, those things at the exact same time, right? Like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. Um, I don't know what to say. I, I get worried about X, Y, or Z. But if we go back and remember, where does Paul put the emphasis? It is not on Paul and Apollos. It's not on you. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. You can be a terrible gardener and your plants still grow. This is true, right? It's true. You can miss weeds and your your tomatoes still shoot up. Because God is the one who gives the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. So a lot of my anxieties and guilt about evangelism are there because I feel like the gardener matters. Who waters, who, uh, who plants matters. I'm pretty important. I've got to get the right words. I've got to be ready for anything that may come up. And the desire to get it all right cripples me. It cripples me. It shuts my mouth. It pushes me to inactivity. But the truth is God gives the growth. God gives the growth. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And in the work of evangelism and of caring for our brothers and sisters in this congregation, we get to be called God's co-laborers. We get to work with God. You are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So instead of the guilt, right? Oh, I got to do it because God commands it. Instead of the shame, right? Let this, right? Fuel you for obedience. Let, let the fact that you get to be called God's co-worker, God's co-laborer, you get to labor with Jesus. You get to roll up your sleeves, right? And do the work that Jesus did of casting out seed and calling in a harvest. You get to see him move. You get to be there right next to God, right? As the Holy Spirit saves someone's soul and the desert the desert becomes a field. You get to proclaim his name. You may stumble, you may falter, you may even fail. But he who waters and he who plants is nothing. But God gives the growth. And you will see people come to Jesus. You will. Because he promises it. He promises it. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for the beauty of your word. Thank you for all the ways that it speaks to our souls. Thank you for the the pictures that it gives us. Thank you for um, how nature and your revelation uh, weave together such amazing and intuitive and and easily to easy to understand. Um, things for us to get a, a grasp, to get a handle on, to understand how an infinite, wonderful, all-powerful creator of everything could be in relationship with us, could, could work with us, 
could be in the, in, in the labor with us. And how we can experience you and know you and love you. Thank you for the images of, of your blessing upon us. Thank you for making us your field. And for calling us out into the world to, to grow more gardens all over this world. And all over the face of the earth. So that one day, when, when heaven and earth split like a scroll and get rolled up. And, and the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. This whole earth, this whole creation will be your garden. And it will be full of your fruit. And we will delight in your presence with us. And we will be transformed and made new. And here in this earth, we get to experience that as your embassy, as your field, as your family, as your body, as your temple. That you dwell among us now. So thank you, Lord. And we beg you to empower us. We beg you to be at work in us. We beg you to bear fruit. We want to bear fruit. And so, Lord, I I pray that that this week people would have uh, good conversations with each other. Where they, they share their hearts. They share their fears. They share where they're at. Where they share what what they're worried about in their own lives. And we come around each other, Lord, and we garden. We take care of our plants. We, we find the ones that seem like they're, they're, they're crushed by the sun. And they seem like they may have no life left. And we love that plant. And we water it. And we care for it. We, we move it to a better part of the garden where the, sallow is, or the, where the dirt isn't so shallow. Where we shield it from the sun. Because we just want it to grow too. We know that every plant is precious in your sight. And we want to see them all grow. Because we love the way that you love. And we care the way that you care. And we're filled with the fruit of your spirit. And in the work we find you. And so, Father, please be gracious to us. Please give us what we lack. None of us feels equipped, Lord. None of us feels capable. None of us feels worthy. But, Lord, you make us so. Your graciousness and your goodness... Is beyond reckoning. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our affections. You are worthy of our love. You are worthy of all of our life. And Lord, we want to give it. We want to give it all to you. So help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. We need you so badly. Amen.